Uh, I didn't see anyone else in the hall, and uh, we have a, I think, a particularly challenging uh, little section to go through today. So I'd like for us to just get started, so maybe we have a chance of uh, of pushing it through. And so um, let's just let's go ahead and jump in. Let's just remind everybody that we finished up last chapter, which was really the finish of the Hebrew writer admonishing the Hebrews for not being mature enough to be able to go on and to think about some more difficult things for them to understand. And in this chapter, he comes to the conclusion that God's promises are doubly sure because when He promised Abraham something, He had already given His word on that. And yet, after Abraham fully demonstrated his trust in God by offering his son Isaac, then God swore to him that his promises were true. So I made them doubly sure. God's word was enough, but it was more than enough when we think about that. And Abraham's example that's truly relevant to the Hebrews and to us was that he showed patient endurance with God. He trusted God. And because of that, it says he obtained God's promise. Even though all he really got in his lifetime was his son, and he actually dwelled in the land of Canaan. So that was really half the things he promised. But God started the nation through him, which he saw that starting. And his lineage ultimately ended up with Jesus, which was the one who would bless those of all nations. And so, in making this conclusion in verse 18 of chapter 6, he says, We have strong consolation who have fled to refuge to lay hold of the hope that's set before us. And so there we have a picture. Hope is like a refuge. We're being, we're being bombarded. They were being bombarded with persecution. Do you want refuge from that persecution? Flee to the hope that's put in front of you. Flee to those things. And then, we came to our theme of the chapter, which is that beautiful picture he draws for us in words. The hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Sure and steadfast, which enters in the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus. And Wednesday night we talked about that picture. Imagine Jesus when He ascended to heaven. He grabs this anchor, which is this hope that we have, that we will receive God's promises just like Abraham did. And He took that anchor with the chain that was chained to our hearts, and He went all the way to heaven, and He put that anchor down at the throne of God where He sat down. That's the picture that He draws here. That's how sure our hope is. It's sitting right there and looking at that. Wow, what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thought that that is. Is that when we trust Jesus, when we believe that God's going to deliver on His promises that He made to us about Jesus and about us being Jesus' servants, that there's nothing that can touch that. Persecution can't touch it. Nothing else can touch it and make that happen. And that's His conclusion of this section to say, and you ought to be mature enough to understand this. Now, we're going to turn back to what I was beginning to talk about. The writer says... He became a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so now we're to chapter 7, and in chapter 7 we can't avoid it any longer. We have to deal with Melchizedek. What is Melchizedek and what is that? Okay, so let me, let me give you um, this little up front here. Um, we're going to get on Wednesday night some applications of this um, as, as, we talk about it, as we talk about this. Really the best 
I can offer you today for applications, and, and hopefully you'll be more creative than I was when I was sitting here studying this. But what I can offer you today is that you will learn to appreciate the absolute detail in which God is God to put His plan into motion. Because we're going to study some details today that nobody figured out. And you'll see that when we come back. We're not so smart. We've had it explained to us, but nobody figured out these details. In addition, this is a very technical and a very logical set of arguments that the Hebrew writer sets down. So, can't apologize for that. That's what the Bible says. He makes those very technical sets of arguments. Now, unfortunately for you, I'm a very technical and logically based person, so I love, love, love this, but I may go too far. So I'm going to have to keep reining myself in on, on, on doing that here because this is, to me, just a beautiful exposition of the logic that comes from putting facts together and then making conclusions. And so we're going we're gonna to see how this writer does that. We're not going to do it. We're going to see how this writer does it. In Hebrews, the fifth chapter, before he went on this aside saying, you're not mature enough to understand what I need to tell you about Melchizedek, he mentions Psalms 110 and verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's going to quote this again. He did quote it again, and we read it in Hebrews 6, verse 20, for the second time. Hebrews 7.11, we'll talk about today, he says it the third time. Hebrews 7.17, he says it the fourth time. 7.21, he says it the fifth time. What does that mean? It's kind of important. It's really, really. <laughs> I mean, in the span of two chapters, in the span of one chapter, there's four to six mentions of a verse that is said one time, one time only, anywhere else in the Bible. There's something to figure out. Exactly. There is something to figure out here. So, the other thing I'll say is, you are all very good students. You are very much capable of doing this. We have mature Christians in here. So don't be scared about this thing, because the author really does lay out some things. But this really challenges us to make sure we understand how we're studying. And that kind of detail that sometimes we have to study to understand exactly what Scott's saying to us. So, with that being said, I'd like to get two people to volunteer for me to uh, read. Who are my who are my who, who are my readers here? here? So, Janelle, can I get you to do look up Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41? And I see a hand over here, Lisa or Tom. It doesn't. Y'all can wrestle for it in a minute. Acts the second chapter, verse uh, verse 29. Um, the reason we're going to start here is because. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. Psalm 110 is very important in understanding exactly who Jesus was. In fact, we're going to start with Jesus quoted this psalm to make a very specific claim about himself, and the Jews got it immediately what he was saying. Peter uses this same psalm to make another point about Jesus, and the people on Pentecost repented because he made the point out of this psalm. And interestingly, these points are made here, and we're going to jump down here to talk about Melchizedek. So let's start with just how important is this psalm? So Janelle, would you read Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41 through 46, where Jesus quotes this. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How, do, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, 
The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Okay. So in that in that psalm, which Jesus quoted, David said, The, the Lord, who's that, by the way? God. The Lord said to my Lord. Jesus. We know that's Jesus because that, that's the point that's being made there. And yet, the Messiah was going to be the what of David? The Son. How is it that someone in a, in a society that was driven by genealogy and that when someone's son was always lesser than them, the greater is always the ancestor. Always in Jewish society. How is the greater the descendant? That's what Jesus asked him. So figure this out. You know this they knew this was a messianic prophecy. How is the greater one the descendant? Of course, we have the benefit of being taught about this. What do we know about it? Why the greater one is the descendant? Who, who was David's descendant? He was Jesus. He was man and he was God. And he became greater than David because he was God, even though he would have been lesser than David because he was his son. David wrote this 1,000 years before Jesus quoted it. 1,000 years earlier. And we'll end up with, with, with verse 4 here we're going to talk about in a minute. The Jews had totally missed what God's plan was. It was sitting there for a 1,000 years. I'm going to raise up a descendant of David who's greater than David that David will call Lord. No father ever called their son or their descendant Lord. Okay? Now let's go to Acts, and Peter is going to hammer that point home on the day of Pentecost. Whichever the Lord wants to go to. 29 through 36. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit, by, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, so Peter solves the equation of who exactly is this? This is Jesus. This is Jesus who was resurrected. This is Jesus who has clearly been demonstrated to be God. And what was the effect on those people on Pentecost when they heard that? What's the next thing that came out of their mouth? You're the ones who crucified this one who was the Messiah. And what did they say? What will we do? What will we do? What can we do? You know, they were convicted about this. Have you ever thought about just how subtle that argument is? The Lord said to my Lord. There was your clue that it wasn't just going to be a human king. It wasn't going to be a human kingdom. It was sitting there for a thousand years. 
Jesus pointed it out. And ultimately, until we saw what happened with Jesus and his resurrection, nobody looked at that and nobody, and nobody figured that out. And so, David prophesied that his descendant would be Lord and both exalted to the right hand of God. That's what that prophecy says. And so, Jesus is now both Lord and Christ. So, with that being said, now we get seven references to Jesus will be a high priest of the order of Melchizedek out of the same passage that these points were made out of. Chapter verse 1, these points we've just read, and now we're going to jump to verse 4 of Psalm 110, Melchizedek. So we've got to ask ourselves, who exactly was Melchizedek? Okay, so, let me see here. I'm going to read, well, I don't have, Genesis 14, let's see, who wants to read Genesis 14? beginning of verse 18 through 20. Michelle, thank you very much. As you read, I'm going to just click up some things that are said in that passage about who Melchizedek is, so we'll kind of keep notes on the, on the screen instead of the board as you read. 18 through 20, please. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Okay. Those three verses in Psalm 110, verse 4. You've just heard everything that's said about Mark and Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Okay? So what have we learned about Melchizedek here? He's king of Salem, priest of God Most High, prepared a meal of bread and wine for Abraham, blessed Abraham, he said, a fellow servant of the Lord Most High. He was a priest of God Most High. Praise God for giving Abraham the victory over the kings. Remember that? Abraham was coming back. The kings had actually, of the, of the coastal regions, had attacked the king of Sodom. Lot was actually camped towards Sodom. Lot and his entire family got dragged away by these kings who had conquered the region. Uh, someone who survived the battle came to Abraham, who was living in Canaan already, when God had promised him. And Abraham took a big army, right? How many more people did he take than Gideon? Anybody remember? 18 more people than Gideon took from Gideon as a judge. He took 318 servants, divided them into two companies, and he attacked these coalition of almost a dozen kings from the Tile region and defeated them, got Lot and all of his family back, got all of Lot's possessions back, and plundered them. And on his way home, he met this this king who praised God recognized that God gave you this victory, Abraham. The 318 people, you didn't give it. God gave it to it. And Abraham gave him a tithe. Okay. This was 1,200 years before David wrote, You shall be a priest on the order of Melchizedek. 2,200 years before Jesus when this was written. Now, how are we going to spend all chapter 7 talking about Melchizedek when that's all we know? Okay? And the question I'll ask you as we go through chapter 7, I think the Hebrew writer's going to point out to us, we might know a lot more about this than we think if we are careful Bible students. So, Hebrews introduces us to Melchizedek in the first and the in chapter 7, verse 1, through the first half of verse 2, I'm going to read you the summary of this story that the Hebrew writer gives the Hebrews. 
For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also gave a tenth of all. Okay? Did we learn anything new in that? Didn't you just say all those exact same things? So there you go. There was there was a what? What is that? Thirty words, thirty-five word summary of that of those three verses back there that we've got here. So we haven't learned anything new out of that. But then he begins to unpack it for us. Okay. So how does he unpack it? Seven, chapter seven, chapter verse two, the second part of the verse, first being translated. King of righteousness. And then also, King of Salem. That is, King of Peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, how did Henry Ryder get all that? It was, was God just kind of telling him some secrets here? I mean, I, he was definitely inspired, so I, why would he use this verse to do this? Well, let's just look through what he told us. Melchizedek was king of righteousness. Where, where was that written down in the Old Testament? He was king of righteousness, and he was a righteous man. It was written down in his name. Melch is Hebrew for king. Zedekah is Hebrew for righteousness. His name was King of Righteousness. He was King of Peace. What, is he, what, what did the Old Testament say about him? He was the King of where? Salem. Salem. That word in Hebrew is Shalom. Now Salem was probably Jerusalem. It could have been Shechem. We don't really know. But that word was Shalom. What does Shalom mean in Hebrew? Hmm. Just unpacking their Hebrew words that, that, that were there. He was without father or mother or genealogy. Now, this is where you'll find the most people tripping up on this that they possibly can. So, what is your first? If somebody has no father or mother and no genealogy, what are they? An orphan. Well, they could be an orphan. And but they still have had a father or mother at some point, right? It's impossible. And so a lot of people say, well, this, this, just, this, this just means he was, divine. He was a divine creature. He, he was put there. I want you to dismiss that from your mind. Because if he was a priest of God and he were divine, what would he therefore be? He'd be perfect. What, what are we arguing? That the perfect priest hasn't come yet is where we're headed. And so there would be no need to replace Melchizedek if he were some kind of divine person sitting there. What might this mean? Actually, the words on the word, the words on the, the paper here that what this could be. Somebody without father, mother, or genealogy. An orphan doesn't know what. Well, no, father, or mother, or what its background is. Look at look at. Have you noticed all the people in the Old Testament that we know their lineage about? Do we know any of the lineage of Melchizedek? He came out of nowhere. Does that mean he wasn't human? So he's God's in the real. This is a man with no genealogy. Okay, we're arguing about the, we're, we're making an argument, a proof point about the priesthood. What's really important in the priesthood for the Jews? Genealogy. Genealogy is. So let's hold that thought, but 
this, this actually might mean that. This is a man you were told nothing about. It wasn't important who his parents were. It wasn't important who his descendants were because he was appointed a priest not because of genealogy but something else. Having no beginning of days and no end of life. Well, surely that must mean he's an eternal being, right? Is that really what it means? Would God have put an eternal being on the throne in Jerusalem and they disappeared later? Would that, would, would, would some people in the religious world, they say, oh, that was actually just Jesus. Jesus came to, did God have a plan where he tested Jesus on earth and he took him back? Totally inconsistent. There's nowhere else in the scripture. So what else could that mean? So that could mean that. We could put that, write that up as a possibility. He came out of, John, go ahead. It just means that we don't know when he was born or when he died. He came out of nowhere. He disappeared into history. Mm -hmm. As far as we know. That's not true of Abraham. We, we know Abraham's father, right? His father was Terah. We know how long he We know his children. His son was Isaac and, and Isker and all the other things. He didn't, dis he didn't disappear in his language out of history. Melchizedek did. Some people look at this next verse. He was made like the Son of God. That means he was made divine. Really? Like is an indication he's a type. He's going to... He's, there's something about him that's God's characteristics, but was the Son of God made Himself? Was the Holy Spirit made Himself? No. So he, he wasn't some someone made like the Son of God, other than, by the way, are you and I made like the Son of God? Genesis 2, let us make man in our own image. But this was more than just being human, this was being special. The last thing, he remains a priest continually. So we read that in English and we go, well, that means he's still a priest and there must still be I mean, people who want to actually assign a lineage to this so there still must be a Melchizedek priesthood. Well, the actual word in Greek that's used here for the Hebrew writer said that word actually means remains a priest as long as he existed. And so Melchizedek was a priest, not of the tribe of Levi, a priest appointed by God, a priest who is also a king, a priest that we know nothing about his lineage, we know nothing about his birth, nothing about his death. We know there's something about him that's going to point us, that's help us understand the Son of God, and that we know that as long as he lived, he was a priest. And that's what the Hebrew writer says. You can analyze from reading that, that, uh, that chapter there and actually looking in detail at the things that are said there. Okay, let me stop right here. I put a big thing on the bottom. Questions, thoughts. Who's lost? Who wants to go back and look at this again? There's some more things we do have to talk about, I think, that brings us into focus. But we together? Can we move that? Okay, well, you're going you're gonna to hold. You're going to you're going to hold out until uh, we, we get here. I can understand that. We're not going to read this for time. You've obviously had a chance to read this, but I'd, I'd like to, to, to really now point out he spends six verses now comparing Melchizedek and his priesthood that we've just read about to the Levitical priesthood, which could be an indication of what the real point of us learning about Melchizedek is. Because if the writer's going to spend six verses 
doing this big comparison. He's not comparing him to Jesus. He's not comparing him to... He's comparing Melchizedek to the Levitical priesthood. So let's stop and, and see what exactly does he say. First of all, Melchizedek was a man who received tithes from Abraham. He received tithes from Abraham. He's a priest who blessed Abraham. Just replowing the ground we know. Then he points out in the fifth verse that when the Jews as a people paid tithes to the Levites, what were they showing them? Showing them honor. They're not only doing what God said to do to support the Levites, but a tithe was something that showed someone honor. Someone who had status that was offered to them in doing that. And so the Levites, when they were receiving tithes, understood that they were receiving honor from the people. So that leads us to conclude what? If Melchizedek is receiving tithes from Abraham, what would he be receiving from Abraham? Respect. Respect and honor, right? And when Abraham paid these tithes, he had already received God's promises. God had already promised him twice. The son promised, the nation promised. He is already living in the nation. Son's not born yet. Headed in that direction. He's, he's begun to receive God. He, he's heard all four promises from God. So this is a person, despite the fact that clearly his place in history, Abraham, that God's making these wonderful promises to him, he still shows respect to Melchizedek, God's high priest. And then he comes to a conclusion. And this is a conclusion that comes out of Simply the logic that they would have looked at when analyzing this. Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. That's something the Jews would have said, yep, you're right. Anytime someone gives someone else a blessing, it's the greater one gives a blessing. When God blesses his people, greater to lesser. When Moses gave a blessing someone greater to lesser. It's always the greater person to the lesser person. So between Melchizedek and Abraham, who's the greater, greater person in this situation? Melchizedek. Melchizedek was. That's really the simple point of all that. And then he says again, the Levites received tithes, Melchizedek received tithes. So he makes then this next really interesting point that even Levi himself, through Abraham, Pay ties to Melchizedek. How did that happen? How did, how did Levi himself? Le, Levi was not going to be born for how many more years? Hundreds of years later. And the, oh, excuse me, not hundreds of years. About a hundred years later. How did he pay ties? He wasn't alive. How did, did you? Did, did, I just said through the lineage. Through his descendants. As it were. He was present in Abraham, right? Because Abraham was ultimately going to have Isaac. Isaac was going to have Jacob. Jacob was going to have his sons. Levi was one of the sons. Boom. He's going to be there. And therefore, he makes the conclusion, all Levites, not just Levi, all Levites pay tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham on this incident that happened after the battle of the kings. And therefore, what is the conclusion of that? What do we conclude if all Levites and Levi 
and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater. Melchizedek was the greater priest than the Levite priest. Okay? And that's really the, out of those six verses, that's the conclusion that the writer wants us to all walk away with. That when thinking about the Levite priest, a Jew who was considering going back to Judaism to become a Christian would have gone back to serving under the Levite priest. They would have, well, this was good enough for God, therefore I can go back and do this. And yet, the, the, the argument that he's making here is that no, the Levite priests weren't the greatest priests. In fact, he's going to turn the page and say, here's the big point. If perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under that the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest who should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Abraham? Okay, so what's, the, what, what's his point there? If the Levite priesthood was so good, then what would not be necessary? Another priest. Well, they didn't want another priest, right? They missed all this. But who said there was going to be another one? Psalm 110, verse 4. David. He said it in the same, the same passage. He said, and that priest is going to also be the Messiah. And so, if that priesthood were good enough, why would God replace it? And that's his point he wants them to think about. If you're thinking about going back to Judaism, you're going to an inferior priesthood, one that God has already, 1,200 years ago, said wasn't perfect, wasn't going to last. Because when God said, I will appoint another priest according to the order of Melchizedek, it meant that this priesthood was inadequate. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Yes. Well, if the priesthood was inadequate, what's the answer to that question is, of course, no. It was imperfect. Is the whole point here about not going back to the Levite priest? Or is there some other point that he actually is, is, is heading to? Not going back to Judaism. Not going back to the law. Because it was the priest who did what? Offered sacrifice. They offered sacrifice? They gave the law. By the way, what tribe was Moses of? Levi. Just like Aaron. You ever thought that all the lawgivers came through Levi? Very consistent with what he's just said here. That the law came through the Levites and that priesthood, because Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest. Therefore, if, we, if you needed another priest, that meant that not only was the priesthood imperfect, but the law was imperfect. If the priesthood is changed, it says this very explicitly, of necessity, there must also be what? A change of law. And what does that mean if you're deciding giving up serving God through Christ and just serving God through the law? Is there, is there actually anywhere to go? Can you? That's, and that's his point. You can't turn back to the law because 
The law's not in force anymore. Why? Because God's changed the priesthood. We should be able to conclude that. And if John, if God changed the priesthood, which He's been saying He's going to do for 1,200 years since David prophesied it, and He's now done that through Christ, who is the Messiah, who's, who's, who's gone to heaven, then He's changed the law. And that law will do you no good. Therefore, if you are followers of the law, are you trusting God and obeying Him anymore? No. Not at all. And we just have all these chapters talking about what happens when you turn back and go back to the old ways because you, you prove that you don't trust God. And that's really where he's trying to take them to, uh, to, to ultimately understand and make this point. Now, this is a long logical argument that he's made to basically say the law is of no effect. It's imperfect. It's no longer in force. And there's something else in place. So where do you think he's going to turn next? Are we really, are we really interested in this other than knowing, okay, we, we can't go back to the Old Testament for law. We can't go back to serve it because it's the Old Testament. Even we can't do that. Um, they certainly could not do that. But is that really the big point that he wants us to take away from this? And now this is what is in effect. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Okay? Who? He of whom these things are spoken. What's he really spoken? Who is that? Before you answer, who is that he? What are these things that he's talking about here? Guys and all, all that true, but he is also a priest of the order of who? Remember, that's the seven times we've seen this said. This one who is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek, he, of whom these things are spoken, then belong tribe to Levi. No man has actually ever officiated at the altar from the tribe that he is from. Okay? Who is that one from another tribe? Jesus. Jesus is that one from another tribe. And then he, and then he goes on in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arise from Judah of which the tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. It's evident that the Lord arose from Judah. And in fact, if a person from Judah would have tried to have served as priest, not only would that not be spoken of, what would that be? Remember when Saul, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, tried to offer sacrifices? What happened in that, in that case? His kingdom was taken away. Absolutely. He was punished. That was sinful. He, he took over a right that he didn't have. Samuel was the high priest of the tribe of Levi. But one of the tribe of Benjamin had no right to do that. Jesus had no right as a Jew to be a priest over the Jews. And that's his point here. Therefore, Jesus isn't someone who is 
being a priest under the law. Now, why would he make that point? And let's, let's stop for a minute. Some things that we read in the New Testament about the Jews, we read about things like the Judaizing teachers. We read about things like Christians who were also trying to bind Jewish law on other, on other Christians. What was that? In, what were they really trying to do there? Not 100% of the law, right? They weren't telling them, those Judaizing teachers weren't saying give up Christ. They were saying being a Christian isn't good enough. You have to be a Christian... And, and a Jew. Uh, One of the things that could have been happening with some of the Hebrews is they might have been, oh, yeah, Jesus is great, but I'm getting all this pressure from not doing all this other Jewish stuff, so I'm just going to do, I, I, I'm really not saying this flippantly, but I'll do my Jesus thing on Sunday and I'll do my, I'll do my Moses thing on Saturday, right? That would, wouldn't that have relieved the pressure? Right? That have been back in their social circles, that have been back to the Jewish worship, so that all those kind of things would, would have been there. Could they worship Jesus as their high priest under the law of Moses? No. It doesn't work. This is really an argument that, no, the Old Testament it doesn't work at all for you. Jesus is not, Jesus fulfilled that law. He, he's not in that law and making that happen. And so, He actually, in, in the next verse, when, when you add the next verse, says, and yet it is, now this is his first evidence. Someone from Judah can't serve. You know the Lord's from Judah. That's evidence, right? You should be able to conclude that. Now he says it's far more evident. It's even clearer if you consider if Jesus is in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment. What was the law of a fleshly commandment? Moses' law, right? The Levitical law. The ones where they were fleshly passing forth. If they didn't come from that, but if it came according to the power of an endless life. What's that mean? The power of an endless life. Where was Jesus? Was Jesus, was Jesus like David still in the grave at this point? What did Jesus? Why did? What especially did Jesus connect to Melchizedek? Though Melchizedek effectively had an endless life because he came out of nowhere and he disappeared into nowhere. He was a priest as long as he existed. If Jesus has an endless life and he's like Melchizedek, a priest as long as he existed, how long will Jesus be priest? Forever. Forever. <clears throat> the power of an endless life proves that Jesus is the one to be followed, not the political priesthood. They didn't have any of that power. They had nothing in the likeness of Melchizedek. They were appointed because of genealogy. Melchizedek was appointed by God. Jesus was appointed by God. Melchizedek was a priest as long as he lived. Jesus will be a priest as long as he lived. Therefore, if we try to go back and we try to serve under the law of Moses, if they tried to do that, it's futile. It's sinning. It's not trusting God. It's turning away from God. And that's really the whole point of Melchizedek. Melchizedek should have proved to them, because it's in Psalms 110 verse 4, not because it's in Genesis, that as the Messiah and the person who's going to be a high priest forever, that that high priest is the one we should follow and not any other high priest, not any other system of religion.
see blank stairs, I see slave stairs, I see some head nods. Now let's stop and have some questions. Please, okay. let me, let me, uh, let me take a break here from, from yakking. So go ahead. So Melchizedek was appointed by God. So, yes. so we, and because it says he had no genealogy by their father, so then is that to understand he definitely was not of the Levitical? Was not a, a was not of the Levitical tribe. He definitely was not of the Levitical tribe. Okay. But we don't know what tribe he was. He wasn't a tribe. This is before tribes. Is right. What you're there were no tribes, right? That makes sense. Okay. And he was he wasn't even apparently kin to Moses because he was already king of Salem. And remember, what was Mo? I said Moses. Abraham. What was Abraham in Canaan at this point? A sojourner. So. Whoever Melchizedek was and whoever God appointed him, he was righteous, king of peace, he was appointed by God. And we don't know where he was from. Right? That's, that's kind of the whole point of that. Other than to say that because Abraham bowed to him and he gave him tithes, that therefore the entire nation of Israel bowed to him and gave him tithes. So there. Alright, good. So we can't say that he's, he was Jesus the way you... No, he wasn't Jesus, but he was a... We're, we're going to find this later in Hebrews, a word that we haven't been introduced yet, but I'll introduce it here. He was a shadow or a type. His characteristics foreshadowed characteristics that Jesus would, would show. That doesn't mean that he's equal to Jesus and he had all of Jesus' characteristics because it actually says Jesus wasn't made in Melchizedek's likeness, but what does it say? Melchizedek was made in Jesus' likeness. So Jesus would have these kind of characteristics. God picked the ones that we find the Hebrew writer saying here and say, those are the ones that Melchizedek had. Those should have pointed you to understand that because God can have a high priest that he appoints away from the Levitical law. He's done it once. He can do it again. Except this time, he's going to appoint, some, appoint, appoint someone who will be raised from the dead and live an endless life. And that's, that's really the, the point here. So not that he's equal to Jesus, but if you looked at Melchizedek, you could see a shadow of what Jesus would be in those characteristics. So he'd be like a celestial being? Um, he would, so what, I mean, what angel... A mortal yeah, Right, so what, what, what angel would, would there be there? And if he, were, if he had an endless life, wouldn't he still be here? Is he still here? Can I just say, and I think when they say no mother, no father, I think that what they're getting at is that it's not recorded for us because we don't need to know that. Okay. He had a mother and father, but because he was human, it's my understanding. But it's just that it's that's not of importance to us. So I think the questions you're asking, I mean, I would I will tell you so if um, if you look at the tenets of the Catholic Church, they will begin to claim some things about the priest and the pope that are not only connected to Peter, that they call the first pope, but also to Melchizedek um, by having that divine right given by God that's coming to them. Totally incompatible with what this says. Why? Because that pope is passed on by lineage and other pieces that are there. Supposedly God appoints him every time. Well, there's nothing in the Bible about how that happens. If you look at the Mormon church, you actually see the same kind of thing that's happening. Interestingly, at the time of Jesus, there was huge speculation about who this Melchizedek was. The writer doesn't talk about any of that. They thought he was a divine being. They thought he was an angel. They thought he was the Holy Spirit. 
there was all this speculation in the rabbinical thoughts about what he was. The only thing they didn't speculate about was who he really was and the characteristics that he really showed. And so one of the, the evidences here that, that I think should take us away from thinking that God just created a human on earth in some way that he never created any other human except Adam and Eve, right? Because if Melchizedek were, were a man that received this tribute here, he would have to, if it had no father and no mother, well, he would be exactly like Adam and Eve. In fact, he wouldn't be anything like Christ because what did Jesus have? He had a mother. So Melchizedek, so those kind of things is we really put the logic together and say, no, that, that really that really can't be it. We talk about that some more as we look at that. So uh, one, one quick thing here. He just makes the conclusion for us at the end of this section. Because we're going to move on to the what does this mean for us because Jesus is this high priest. He says, speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Like Melchizedek was a priest as long as he existed. Jesus, you are that priest. And in chapter... Which chapter did we learn that Jesus was a better high priest? Three. Where did he know he was a high priest? And not as a better high priest. He's a high priest forever that we learned from here. So start getting your sheets out and filling out your better things because we're going to get a bunch of better statements in, our, in the last half of the Hebrews 7 as we talk through this. Is because Jesus is this high priest of the order of Melchizedek, all the things for us that are better than they were under the old law. Thank you very much. And we won't be this technical again.